John chapter 3. I want you to, to strive, do all that you can to, to be here this month. I've got a, a sermon series that we're going to use this month to close out the year. It's called The Gift, and um, I really think it's going to catapult us into some awesome things for next year, for 2013. You know, this is the month where, uh, you know, we reflect on our year, but a lot of us are probably starting to make preparations to for 2013. What are things that I want to change? What are things that I want to be different? What are things I want to be I want to add to my life and maybe take away from my life. Um, but, you know, this time of year for a lot of people is actually a very depressing time of year. Um, in fact, they say statistically this is the month where the, uh, the most amount of suicides take place. Um, I don't know how many of you heard the news from the Kansas City Chiefs yesterday, but that's terrible news. And uh, it doesn't surprise me that it happens in the month of December, first day of December, and we're already there because... People are beginning to reflect, beginning to look at their lives. This month is, is uh, really supposed to be an enjoyable month, a very exciting month. For us as believers, for us as Christians, we know what we have to be thankful for. There is a very special gift that was given, uh, obviously not in the month of December, but this is when we celebrate it, Christmas, Christmas time. And so... Uh, you know, while we're reflecting on those things, I, I want us to be uh, in a thought process mentally of not just the gift that God gave. And that's usually where we go. I and mean, in talking about the gift, you know, it can sound like, you know, it sounds very Christmassy. But I want to look at what we have to bring. Because God has made us a gift to the world. And um, it's not a lot of what we hear. A lot of times we hear that the gift that God gave to us was a gift that we didn't deserve, which is true. Which is a gift that uh, shouldn't have been given to us. That's true. But God did give us the gift. But I don't think we have fully purposed what that gift was, why that gift was given, what, what are we supposed to obtain from that. And so I want us to really take some time this month to look at that. We're going to cover some, a few different things. This isn't going to be your typical Christmas series. We're going to tie it in with Christmas, and you'll see how all that will tie together you know, when we get down to Christmas. So I want you to be here as much as you can over the next month. Um, I want to tell you this, that in January we do have some exciting things that are taking place with the church, some exciting announcements, and, and I really believe God is going to be doing some awesome things through us in 2013. Does anyone else believe that with me? For you individually, for us as a church, God has done some great things in this church. Um, he's added seven new families just in, in 2012 alone, and so we're excited about all the people that God is bringing through these doors. We're not here about people. It's not about numbers, but God wants his church to grow. God has a purpose and a mandate for this church in this city for such a time as this. And I'm, I'm more and more convinced of that than I've ever been. And so um, I, I want us to really begin to put a focus to that. And the, the church isn't about 
exist. In fact, this isn't church. You are the church. The Bible talks about the church as people, as a nation, not a building or an address. You're the church, and really the church has come to this address today. But you're the church, which means you're not just the church when you're inside these doors. We're the church outside these doors. But the thing is, is if you're not getting what's taking place in here, then you've got nothing to take out there. And what we take out there is very important. The, the world's getting darker, is it not? We're seeing things happen today that not even thought of before. We're seeing things take place. We're, we're seeing struggles. We're seeing the economy. We're wars and rumors of wars, trials, tribulations, things happening in our world, uh, things happening in other countries, and it's just it's mind-boggling. But we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said himself that these things would come as, it, as the end drew near. But what did he say? He said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. We're overcomers. Amen? And we have a message to send to Valdosta. We have a message to send to Lowndes County. This is where God has established us. We, can, we may not be able to reach the entire world, but we can reach our world. We can, you can reach your world, your job, your family, your home, the individuals you come into contact on a regular basis. But what are we reaching them with? We've got to be different. We've got something to bring to the table. And so uh, we're going to be talking about the gifts that God has placed inside each of us and, and what we have to give in, to re in, in return. And the title of my message today is actually expecting something in return. Usually when we give Christmas gifts, in fact, gifts, Christmas gifts, presents, is one of the things that we get so excited about about Christmas is giving other people presents and seeing how happy they are and getting presents from people. And we've done all that in light of Jesus giving his son. That's what we say. But, you know, on Christmas morning when we're ripping up those presents, you know, a lot of times that's, I don't know about you, but that's not always what I'm thinking about. I'm not holding that present and unwrapping that new watch or those new clothes or whatever it is and thinking, Wow, I'm so thankful Jesus gave his son. That's usually not what's running through my mind, although that's why we say we give gifts, because he gave the ultimate gift. Usually we're thinking, another sweater, this isn't going to fit. Why didn't they just get me a gift card? You know, I could have done better than this. You know, those are things that run through our minds. So I want us to get us focused on the gift, but when God gave his gift, he expected something in return. And usually we think about that as rude. I'm giving you some, but you shouldn't expect something out of me. But we're going to see today that God did. And look at John chapter 3, verse 16. John 3, verse 16. We all know this verse. We can say it by heart. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. He gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. So love was the motivation. Why did he love the world? That he gave his only begotten son. Here's the thing. God gave his best. God gave his best. His ultimate best. 
That's probably one of the hardest things that we have in our lives is giving the best of something. And a lot of times it's because we don't want someone else to have better than what we have. You got to think God sent his only son to the earth and he was minus his son in heaven for 33 years. That he, the world had his best and you know you hate it when you give something, give someone something that's valuable to you and they treat it horribly. And it's exactly what the world, what the earth did with Jesus. His best in the hands of people that didn't honor, didn't value what was in front of them. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why did God send his son? Why did he give this gift? There was something that God was interested in. There was something that motivated God. And I think that we've missed this for a very long time. Something happened way back in the beginning of this book. And since that event occurred, God was always striving to get it right. Adam and Eve fell. Adam and Eve sinned. Okay, what did, what did that mean? What does that mean that Adam and Eve sinned? See, God created the earth to look like heaven, was designed and to operate and was ordered like heaven itself. And then he placed Adam and Eve in charge of it. Now, God created all of this, yes. But Adam and Eve were his most treasured creation. The most valued thing that he created out of all of it. He loved Adam and Eve more than he loved the trees, more than he loved the ocean, more than he loved the sky and the stars and the sun, and how awesome these things are. I mean, we're still trying to figure out the expanse of this universe. We're still trying to figure out everything that God created, everything that God put here for us. But yet his most treasured, valuable creation was you and I, was Adam and Eve. And so Adam and Eve are the thing that God loves the most. But by sinning, by disobeying God, they fell into control of the thing God hated the most. Look at Romans chapter 5. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin... And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. What Adam and Eve did came to all of creation. And we know that word death, it doesn't mean literal death because Adam and Eve, when they took the bite of the apple, they didn't literally fall to the ground and die. That word death means separation. A separation occurred in the relationship. Why was the relationship so important? Because Adam and Eve could not operate on the earth as they were intended without the original relationship they had with God. They couldn't rule the earth and control the earth and govern the earth as they were mandated in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 without having the relationship they had with God in the beginning. God would come down in the cool of the day and walk with them and talk with them. 
You're going to have trouble ruling and governing on the earth the way God wants to rule and govern on the earth if we aren't talking to the one who's in charge in the first place. If we don't have that connection. So there was a disconnect that took place. And so ever since that event, ever since that sinful event where they ate of that tree, God had one interest and one motive throughout the rest of the book. And that was to get man back in that relationship. Man back in that position of ruling, governing, controlling the earth. Being his treasured. But see what happened was sin came in and sin took up residence inside Adam and Eve. Now why is that a problem? Because God and sin, they don't mix. Light and darkness, they have no dwelling together, the Bible says. There's no hanging out. There's no relationship. There's no closeness. There is a strict disconnect between light and darkness, between sin and God. They cannot cohabitate. So God could no longer live in his most treasured being, his most treasured creation, with sin being there as well. So God has one of the greatest dilemmas of all mankind. The thing that he hates the most has taken up residency in the thing he loves the most. The thing God hated the most came to live in the thing God loved the most. That's why Jesus came. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so we can go to heaven? No. To remove the sin so that he could come once again, live within us, restore that relationship, restore us in our position of royalty so we can once again... you got to think, the only one, the only being, the only one that God... Uh, was against was Satan. Every other angel, every other heavenly being, everybody else, everything else was against or was on God's side. This one being, this one person, Satan, was the only one that was against everything God was about. And now man has is in control or is now being controlled by that one rival being. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to create the perspective of what God is dealing with here. I'm trying to show you what's taking place, what took place in Genesis chapter 3. When man submitted to Satan and disobeyed God, he went under the control of sin and Satan himself. The only being, the only thing in the entire earth that was against everything God was about. And so here is God's motivation to get man back. See, God never threw the plan out. God never said, well, forget, the, forget this whole thing. Let's just scratch the whole, you know, ruling on earth thing. Let's forget that. He never got rid of that. So John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave, He gave up something. The gift was now put in place. Why? Because that sin had to be dealt with. 
the only one that could deal with the sin was himself. Because everything else, there was no other man that he could create because every person born was born into the sin that Adam and Eve brought into the world. And that sin, you can picture sin like a doorway. Here's the, here's the doorway of sin, and through that doorway came death, came destruction, came calamity. Everything we see here is because of the doorway called sin. Everything that's happening today, the darkness of our world today, the, the, the death. I mean, I was just thinking about it yesterday. This is weird, going through the store and was just thinking, we have Clorox and we have bleach and we have all these things to kill disinfectants because of what Adam and Eve did. That, that stuff wasn't necessary before the fall. Think about this. You have never had to... Who in here has ever had to teach your kids to do bad? They do it all by themselves. They, no one had to teach them. It was automatically there. From the time that the will could finally show up that this is what I want to do, it was already there. I didn't have to teach my son, hey, uh, go bang on the TV with the remote control. No, he does that all by himself. And I have to correct that mentality. I have to correct this is what you want to do, but this isn't what you're going to do. Thank you, Adam and Eve. That is a result of the fall. And so God had to take care of the sin situation. The thing God hated the most came to live in the thing he loved the most. Look at this in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. So Jesus is the gift. We know this. This is why we celebrate Christmas. God sent his only son. Let me give you a, a little tidbit of information. In, in John chapter 3, verse 16. You know, we are a kingdom church. We preach the kingdom of God. That is why we're here. That is what God was establishing in the very beginning, and that is still what he's trying to establish today. Jesus did not come for the sole purpose to get rid of your sin, save you from hell, and get you to heaven. He, get, he restored you back into a position of authority, governing, controlling, ruling on this earth. We've been looking at that for a while. Well, John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that who would ever believe in him would not perish, but he would have everlasting life. Some translations say eternal life. Let me give you a little piece of information. John wrote his gospel later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. His was the last one to be written. By the time he got around to writing his gospel, there was such a, uh, an uproar in the area, a political uproar that it seemed like Christians. Look, this is how much they preach the kingdom. This is how often, this is how much they talked about government that people in the surrounding area, government people, thought that their advancements and their message was strictly political and talking about a natural government that was going to overtake their government. And you, you know, Matthew, uh, his book has more references to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven than anybody else. Same with Mark and same with Luke. Well, now John shows up. And you don't find the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven referenced 
as much in the book of John. But you do find this term, eternal life, everlasting life. When John wrote his book, he realized that they're, they're, they're construing our message and it's not seeming like what it's really about. This isn't about a natural government that's going to one day take over governments of this world. We're not going to overthrow the governor. We're not going to overthrow, uh, you know, uh, the emperor of Rome. That's not what we're here to do. So he changed the term of kingdom of God to eternal life. So when you read that verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have the kingdom of God. Now it's a little different. Because, see, we've taken that eternal life and said, see, if I believe on him, I won't perish, and I'll be able to live in heaven forever. That's what we've done. That's what we've done with John 3, 16. And we, we totally skip this earth. We totally skip everything that's here. But he's saying the kingdom of God will be yours if you believe on my only begotten son, whom I sent to restore the kingdom. And if you believe in him, you will not perish, but you will have that kingdom that I've been telling you about. That's why John used that term, because he wanted people to understand this isn't about a, a government, a natural government. I'm not going to set myself up as king. That's what they thought Jesus was going to do. That's why they put him to death. That's why they crucified him, because they thought he was going to come in and he was going to overthrow. That's why they took him to Pontius Pilate, a governor. They didn't just murder him. They had him crucified. That was a Roman way of killing somebody for something that you have done against the government. I mean, he was hung up there between thieves, between two men who had stolen, who had actually committed acts of sin. Okay? So we got to understand that. Look what he says in John chapter seven, uh, 10, John 10, verse 17. Therefore, my father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Look, his life was not taken from him, otherwise it wouldn't have been a gift. But he said, I am giving myself up for the greater good. I am giving myself to you. It's a gift. He's saying it's not taken from me. Now, what was he looking for? Watch this in John chapter 12. Go over a couple more chapters. If his life would have been taken, then it wouldn't have been a gift. And in John chapter 12, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in the world, in this world, will keep it. There's that term for eternal life. Look what he says. Most assuredly, I say to you, if a grain of wheat falls and, and, or if it doesn't die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will create more of itself. God was not giving with no expectation of something in return. See, God has a system of sowing and reaping. 
God has a system of putting something in and getting something back. God is an investor. So he's saying, if I sow my son into the earth and it dies, then it will reap me more sons. I will put my only son in the earth so that when it dies, it will bring forth many more sons. I will sow a king in the earth so when it produces a harvest, I will reap many more kings. God was giving of himself what he expected to get back in return. Nobody puts a type of grain or a type of uh, vegetable or anything that they farm in the ground and doesn't expect to get more of it back. If you take an apple seed, one seed, and you put it in the ground, it will bring forth an apple tree and give you many more apples. What God sent to the earth is what he expected to get back. He's following his own law of sowing and reaping. He's following his own plan of if you give, it will be given back to you. See, he knows that will work because he follows it himself. When he gave his son, Jesus Christ, if Jesus would not have died, if that seed would not have fallen and died, then it wouldn't reap him back more sons. That's what God did when he gave his only son. He's expecting something in return. This wasn't just a gift that he gave us that is uh, you know, undeserved, it's because of, you know, he just had favor on us, he felt bad for us, and he just wanted to get us to heaven. No, what he brought to the earth is an example of what he was trying to get from each one of us. Jesus' life was a picture of what God was trying to get back from you and I. He wanted to get back a people, a nation, sons and daughters, kings and queens, people that would rule on the earth and govern the earth the way Jesus did. Did anything control Jesus? No. Did he have all authority? Yes. That's what he wanted to get back from Jesus' death. For God so loved the world that he gave his son so that he could get more sons back. That's why he doesn't want you to perish. And that's that's why he wants you to have the kingdom of God. It's not about heaven, people. There's a gift. God is expecting something in return. And so like we just saw in Romans chapter 5, that sin came into the world through one man. Go to Romans chapter 5, verse 15. Let's finish that out. Romans chapter 5 and verse 15. Watch this. But the free gift is not like the offense. Free gift. Free gift. Let me show you something. 
Free gift does not mean that there wasn't a price paid. If I give you a gift and it's free, there was still a price that I had to pay to get it. And sometimes we devalue the gift because it was free to us, but we forget there was a price paid on the other side. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. When he says it's not like the offense, he's saying uh, what, what Adam did brought uh, disaster to the world. It brought death to people. It brought sin to people. But what God has brought is bringing life to people. It's not the same characterization. But yes, through one man, death came in. And through one man, life came in. Okay? Verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Now watch this. For if by the one man's offense, death reigned. That means death had control. Death was in charge. And you know, when you, before you found Jesus, you were controlled by another culture. You were controlled by another God. You were controlled and you lived according to another system in the world. Because of that one sin, death came in and ran everybody's course. Well, before I found Jesus, I was doing whatever I wanted to do. No, you weren't. You were doing whatever the devil wanted you to do. Period. You thought it was your own impulse. You thought it's what you wanted to do. But there was another God dictating and calling the shots in your life. Death reigned. That means in charge. That means has control through the one man's offense. Much more... Those who receive the abundance of grace, and watch this, the gift of righteousness will what? Reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Will reign in life. If you receive his gift, then you will reign. Where death and sin used to reign, used to control. Now you'll be in charge through the one, Jesus Christ. Well, doesn't that sound a lot like Genesis chapter 1, verse 26? And God created man in his image and in his likeness and gave him dominion or control. There's one translation, I believe it's the Amplified, that reads this, uh, that you will reign as kings in this life. Now, that's what we've been talking about on Wednesday nights with the believer's authority and uh, power and authority and control and reigning in life. Those are not terms that we have associated with the Christian life. I think a lot of Christians read that verse if they read it and they read it as you will barely get through life through the one Jesus Christ. And he's saying, no, you will reign in life. You will be in charge in this life. 
you will call the shots in this life. It's time for us to start calling the shots over our finances. It's time to start calling the shots in our families. It's time for us to start calling the shots in our marriages. It's time for us to start dictating uh, what our homes are going to be like, what our schools are going to be like, what our government's going to be like, what our communities are going to be like. But that's not going to happen until we get a picture of we're in charge. We're calling the shots. You know, we said this past Wednesday that, you know, when Jesus showed up on the, th- on the scene, things would ask him for permission. When he showed up, you know, at the, the tombs, the gatherings, and, and then you have the demon-possessed man that comes out. And what did the demons say? Will you permit us to go into the... They didn't tell Jesus what they were going to do. They had to ask permission. And we said this. Did that sickness that was in your body, did it ask your permission to be there? Did that lack in your finances and in your bank account, did it ask your permission that it could be there? Well, you know, these things happen. This is just part of life. No, God has put us in charge. I'm not saying they won't happen, but we're here to reverse it. We're here to turn it around, not just let it run its course in our lives. Did that strife and arguing in your home, did it ask your permission to be in your home? Or have you just been letting it run its course? No, we're supposed to stand up and say, no, I will not allow that spirit of strife in this home. I rebuke it in the name of Jesus and it has to go. What about our communities? What about our cities? What about our nation? Has the church stood up and said, no, I don't give that permission to be in my nation. This will be a holy nation founded upon the word of God. That, that spirit of homosexuality has, has, no, uh, has no business in, in, in my country, where I live, where I reside. Has the church stood up? No, we're saying, well, God loves everybody. Just accept them. Just bring them on in. Yeah, God loves them so much that he doesn't want them to be tormented by sin any longer. So let's confront the sin, get it out, so we can live the way God wants us to live. The economic status of our nation. Did it ask the church's permission if it could be here? I know it sounds silly because not a whole lot of people are preaching this, but that's what my Bible says. My Bible says that Jesus told Peter that I'm building my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Oh, well, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would have their sins washed away, and now one day I'll go to heaven. That's how we have reinterpreted that verse. When God sent his son, his gift, to get us out, get the sin out of us, get us out from under control of the enemy, so we can now live for the king and rule as kings on the earth. That's what this tells me right here. That through the gift of righteousness, I will reign in life. 
through the one Jesus Christ. I tell you, that Romans 5.17, you ought to print it out. You ought to write it down. You ought to put it on your mirror. You ought to put it on your dashboard. You ought to put it on your computer at work. That is the most, that's one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Reign in this life. I'm telling you right now, until the church gets a hold of this, we'll continue to see these things happen. And we know things are going to get darker. We know that things are going to get worse. But that is no reason for us to stand by and say, well, you know, it's just going to get that way. It's just going to get dark. So what can we do? Just thank God we're going to heaven one day. Those Christians are going to be surprised when they get to heaven and God's going to say, why would you allow that to happen down there? Why did you let that thing take place in your home? Why did you let that anger live in your life? I gave you control over all that. We're supposed to be in control, people. We, we're supposed to be permitting things and allowing things or not permitting and not allowing things. That's what the gift was here for. God is expecting something in return. See, he gave us a gift that produces results. And this might surprise some of you, but God is a result-oriented God. He wants results. God is all about results. God is a smart, he's a smart guy. We might not think that sometimes, but he's a smart guy. He's smarter than any of us. He is an investor. He is putting something in to get something out. See, uh, we don't even think that way. We don't even think that way. We, we Money is just an object to us, and it goes out as fast as it can come in, and we don't know anything about actually putting money in places where it can bring us back something or anything, time. Have we invested time into something recently that's going to bring us more time, that's going to bring us uh, something that's going to be working for us, resulting, bringing results in our lives? That's why we have the term, that's a waste of of time. Why? It's a waste because it's not going to bring a result to me. God is a results-oriented God. He's looking for results. And I'm not saying, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about works here. I'm not talking about God wants you to work it, and if you don't work it right, then he doesn't love you. I'm not saying that. He loved you before you ever loved him. Bible says in that same chapter, Romans chapter 5, that uh, while we were still sinners, he sent his son. Look, he sent his son Jesus without any promise that you would say, yeah, I accept that gift. Would you give someone a gift that you didn't think they would honor and treasure and value? No. Yet God did without any promise that we would accept it and value it the way he values it. That we would even put it to use. People have given me some gifts that they thought I really needed and I didn't have any use for. And they came to my house and they were surprised that I didn't have it. Someone gave me this little tie thing that is little motorized and you put your ties on it and it spins around. It's, I don't even know where it is today. If they came to my house 
hey, where's that tithe thing I bought you? Apparently I didn't value it the way you valued it. Well, we all got those gifts. Stuff that you've given to people, you know, you'd probably be surprised. You're not even using it. And that's the way God feels about most of us. Now he loves us. But man, he gave us a gift that in our lives, he wants it to produce results. He, the result that he wanted was not for us to be sitting on our hands while the world is falling to pieces and, and for us to be saying, well, we're just waiting for heaven. I talked to a gentleman this week. It was a complete God thing. I was just sitting up here at the office. He just came in. And I've met him a couple of times before. I know where he works and stuff. And he just came in. And we sat down. We're just having a good conversation. And I know where he goes to church. He goes to a church here in town. He's told me where he goes. And he's happy there. Good for him. But, man, he threw out the statement that confirmed, yep, Anchor Faith Church needs to be in Valdosta, Georgia. Threw out the statement you know, Pastor Mark, I just can't seem to get over, you know, just I just wish I could be a better person, you know. But I'm carnal, you know, I'm a sinner, you know, and I, I still, you know, I cuss sometimes even when I don't want to cuss. And I'm still, I still say things to my wife that I wish I didn't say. And, you know, I'm just that carnal person. I just, you know, I wish I could be a better person. Open up the door. And yeah, I took it. I went right up in his kitchen. I made some lunch, some dinner, and we got to cooking. We went, we were talking. Hey, my Bible says that the gift that Jesus came to give us was righteousness. According to Romans 5.17, the gift of righteousness will cause you to reign in life. Now, go to Romans chapter 6, verse 13. This is what I showed him. Romans chapter 6, verse 13. Here's what most Christians believe. God came and freed us from our past sins, but I have no control over sinning. What most people believe. He did not empower me to defeat sin. He just got rid of all the stuff I did before I said the prayer. And then if I just keep saying the prayer, then he'll keep erasing my sin. But the sin itself, I have no control over that. I can't help if I cuss. I can't help if I treat my kids horrible. I can't help if I get angry at people. I can't help if I respond out of anxiety and fear. I can't help those things. I'm just a carnal sinner. I'm just a sorry sinner. Saved by grace. Thank God I'm going to heaven. But Romans chapter 6 Verse 13 says, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Now, he's not going to tell you not to do something you cannot do. If the Bible says don't present yourselves as unrighteousness to sin, then apparently we have the ability to not present ourselves as unrighteousness to sin. This isn't for condemnation. If you are saved, if you are a believer, if you have prayed the prayer to make Jesus the Lord of your life, this is not condemnation. Well, I just sinned on the way over here in the car. So what? I'm not here to make you feel horrible. I'm here to help you get beyond that. Let's keep going. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. 
Verse 14, for sin will not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. I said, you need to go home. You need to open your Bible and you need to underline, for sin shall not have dominion over you. For sin will not control you. It will not dictate your your life and your actions and what you do with your time and what you look at and how you talk to people and how you respond. Sin will not have dominion. That's what my Bible says. Romans 5.17 says, if you have received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Well, I thought grace just meant that it covered up all my sin. No. People would be surprised if every time they looked at the word grace in the Bible, it talks about empowering you to do something. But we have made grace an excuse not to do something. If you don't believe me, go on YouTube and go find the video of people preaching that grace covers everything and it doesn't matter what you do, God still loves you and you are still a believer and God still uh, sees you the way he sees you. Yes, he sees you as righteousness, but the Bible calls us to holiness. That's what the gift was that Jesus gave us. He didn't just give, give us a covering. I think this is one of my points, that Jesus' gift, God's gift to us, was not merely a covering, but an empowering. Well, thank God for his grace, because, man, I've done some horrible things. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his mercy. But when he talks about grace, it's usually coupled with power. Look it up. Go home today. It's okay to open your Bible, uh, you know, other times than when you're here. Go open your Bible, look up the word grace, and see if it's not followed with power or see if it's not followed with reigning or ruling. Grace is not followed with sit by. In fact, Romans chapter 6, verse 1, because, uh, because we have grace now, should we just allow sin to run its course and Paul says absolutely not certainly not with an exclamation mark I mean you could just see him yelling it at the Romans no that's not what grace is for well you know Pastor Mark I've just been trying well let's stop trying and let's start doing this isn't a message of condemnation because Romans chapter 8 And if you read Romans 5, 6, and 7, you'll see why Paul had to put in Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. I thank God for the Holy Spirit that reveals to me when I'm doing wrong or when something I'm doing isn't lining up with the word because that means I have now been empowered to get it right next time. I may have cussed that person out, but next time the Holy Spirit has revealed to me, we shouldn't have responded. A, a response of love would have been in place, no matter if they were right or wrong. And so next time, let's get it right. So next time I get it right. Why? Because for God, 
so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's why. Because God has given me a gift, not to cover, but to empower. We've been empowered. We have to understand the gift that he gave, and we have to understand that when he gave that gift, he expected something in return. He expected a result. Let's read the rest of that in in Romans chapter 5. Go to verse 18. Just kind of, it gets very repetitive, but it's good. Verse 18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So the result, again, looking for results, the result of Adam's sin was condemnation. But the result of Jesus' obedience was justification in life. You've now been justified. You've now been made righteousness. The Bible says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I told that man, I said, you aren't a sinner. I can bark like a dog, but it doesn't make me a dog. You may sin, but it doesn't make you a sinner. A sinner is one who habitually practices without any remorse or sorrow for what they've done and with no desire to change. That's a sinner. And I don't care if you've prayed a prayer. I don't care how old you were. I don't care how sincere you were. If if, if you have Jesus as the Lord of your life, you will not habitually sin and have no sorrow. And I mean, every time for those that are saved, for those that have made Jesus the Lord of their life, the Holy Spirit will begin to speak up and say, hey, that's not right. Hey, we don't talk like that. Remember, we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the year. He's in your life to convict you, Jesus said. Conviction is not condemnation. Condemnation makes you feel guilty and stops you. Conviction makes you feel empowered and says, you don't have to do that. Condemnation doesn't say that. Condemnation says, you're just a sorry person. You're never going to make it. You're never going to do anything. Why do you even try? Why don't you give up this whole Christian life? It's no fun. Look, you could be doing all this stuff out here, and, and you wouldn't even have to feel bad about it. Just give it up. That's condemnation. Conviction says that's not the right way to handle it. You can do it this way. Don't confuse condemnation and conviction. I love conviction. I accept it daily in my life. Because as soon as I mess up, conviction shows up and says, hey, we don't have to do it that way. And if I change it, then I'm following, I'm taking the gift that God gave through his son and I'm putting it to use. And it's producing results in my life. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, was in control, had dominion, even so grace might reign. There it is again. We're talking about grace and we're talking about reigning. 
grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how God sees you. God doesn't see a sinner. I asked him, I said, is God a king? Yeah. Is God your father? Yeah, I believe he is. Do you know what they call children of the king? Children of the king? No, royalty. If you are even in the king's family, you're royalty. You are royalty. You are a child of the king. Let me tell you right now, God doesn't have sinners in his family. That's why he sent his son, because he wanted to get his family back, but they were covered in sin. So he said, the only way I can get them back is if I get rid of the sin. Let me eliminate the problem. Look at John chapter 14, verse 12. John chapter 14, verse 12. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Sometimes I wonder if we really believe Jesus when he says stuff like this. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Once again, God is looking for results. Once again, God is saying, are you going to bear the results of the life that I've given you, the gift that I've given you? If you want to make use of, make complete and total use of the gift that God sent in his son, it would be to bear results in our lives. He's looking for results. He will do even greater works. Even greater works? You've heard me say it before, not greater in power, not greater in demonstration, but greater in number. Because where there was only one man, Jesus, going around healing, going around casting out devils, going around calming storms and raising up dead people, now there are many. Why? Because God sowed a son into the earth, and unless that son falls and dies, then it won't bear more sons. But we know Jesus died. Jesus was sown into the earth so that God would reap many more sons. You're saying I'm just like Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's what the Bible says. Bible says I'm in Christ. Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that I've been raised and seated with Christ in heavenly places. So you're saying I could die on the cross? Nope. Being like Jesus doesn't give you his purpose and his assignment. We all have different purposes and different assignments. That was his purpose and assignment. But everything else he did, we can do. Because healing sick people, that wasn't his purpose or assignment. 
That was his ability. And you have the ability. Are you called to Samaria and Jerusalem and Galilee? Capernaum? Probably not. He was. But the things he did there are the things we're supposed to be doing here. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's why. The gift that God gave, he was expecting something in return. The gift that God placed in the earth, he was putting there in hopes that it would reap him a return. Now I know, you know, when it comes to Christmas time, we aren't supposed to give gifts hoping that people give us something back. But I'm telling you that God did. God gave a gift. It was a free gift. There's nothing you can do to get it. You know that. There's nothing you can do to get God's gift. There's nothing you can do. You can't be good enough. There's only one way to get his gift. And that's to believe in him as Lord. Believe that he died on cross, died on the cross, rose again from the grave, and make him the Lord of your life. That's how you get the gift. It's a free gift. That word gift is charisma. It means free. It means undeserved. It means miraculous. Miraculous in the sense that there was no way on earth that we should have had that gift given to us. God should have given up. God, had, God should have said, forget it, I'm not even messing with that bunch. And there were many times where he got close. But he knew my, my purpose for the earth, my purpose for mankind, the plans that I have for man, they are greater than that. And if I can just get the sin out of them, they can accept my gift and be empowered to do what I placed them to do here from the beginning. That's what the gift is. That's why this gift is so important. Let me show you something. God's gift to us cost him his son's life. Our gift to God, I have something to give to God? Absolutely. Our gift to God cost us our lives. God's gift to us, there was a price. And it's a free gift to us. But he paid a price for it. He sent his only son. And it cost him his life. But our gift to God cost us our life. The Bible says that we are to be crucified with Christ. Jesus even said, he said, if, if, you, if you don't lay down your life, you're not fit for the kingdom. He said, if you put your hand to the plow, but you're looking back, you're not even fit. There's a price to pay for the gift that we give back to God. And he wants your life. He wants everything about you. He wants your businesses. He wants your finances. He wants your family. He wants your relationships. 
He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants your soul. He wants your strength. I mean, he wants all of it. In fact, God, if he doesn't get all of it, he doesn't want any of it. I'll just go ahead and tell you right now. God is not a God of seconds. He doesn't take seconds. He does not take leftovers. It might surprise you that in Christmas time we're going to talk about tithe and offering. But we are. Because when we're talking about what we're giving back to God, and that's what we're going to spend the next weeks doing. We're talking about what we give back to God. And I want to make sure that he gets all of me. I don't want to hold anything back. I'll tell you this right now, that tithing is not giving to God. Tithing is not giving to God. In fact, you'll never find in the Bible where it says, give your tithe. Give the tithe. Because you can't give something that doesn't belong to you. In the Bible, every time you see the word tithe, it has the word bring. Bring the tithe. And I'll tell you right now, if you're not giving that, he's not, give, he's not accepting anything else. It's what the Bible says. This isn't about law and this, you know, go by the book. and It's not about that. But God is a man of his word. And when he puts it in the Bible, you can't say, okay, God, I'm giving you my tithe and think you've given something. It's already his. That would be like if my vehicle broke down. And Van... Here said, hey, I got an extra vehicle. You can, you, can, you can use mine for the week. And so I drive Van's truck around for a week. And then at the end of the week, I get my vehicle back, and it's working. And I pull out the keys, and I go up to Van. I say, Van, I, I really want to give you this. I feel led to give you. And Van's going to say, are you kidding me? That's mine. That's my vehicle. I know that the Holy Spirit, I mean, he's just really laid on my heart to give you this, this truck. The Bible says that the tithe, it's holy unto the Lord. The tithe belongs to him. He's already carved it out. Before you even get your paycheck in your hand, he's already carved out 10%. And we're going to talk about giving the first. We're going to define that. I'm telling you, it's going to open your eyes. It's going to get you so jack excited about tithing and giving to God that you're not going to want to miss. I'm going to tell you right now. I know I'm the pastor, and so it seems self-serving. I'm just trying to get your checks, but you're not giving to me. Bottom line, you're not giving to me. I don't get those checks. If they were going in my account, you'd kill me anyway, so... Yeah, it has nothing to do with me. We're going to talk about the Bible. And God comes first. If you get, if someone pays you, you know, if you do a job for someone and you give $1,000, you, you get $1,000. And someone pays you in 10 $100 bills. That's $1,000. What's the tithe off of that? $100. 
Very simple. 10%. The word tithe means one-tenth. $100. Which one's the first one? The first one that goes out. You see, here's what we do a lot. We, we get our paycheck, and then we go grocery shopping, and we pay our mortgage, pay our car payments. Oh, here's, here's what I got left over, God. If it's the 10th, great. If it's not, well, it's what I got. And we forget that the other 900 is blessed because we gave the first 100. Now, it's in your heart. He's not saying literally, you know, when you get your paycheck, come drive up to the church and make sure that the first thing goes out. But it's a mentality. If I got this, okay, I know this is untouchable. This doesn't. This won't even go anywhere except for the church. And coming up pretty soon, we're going to be offering ways for you to give online. Where you can just go, anchorfaith.com, click the button, and give it right there. For those of us that may have a hard time making it to Sunday with the one-tenth. We're talking about giving to God. He gave his best. He gave 100%. Not just 10. And all he requires out of us is the 10. And he says, that other 90 that you have, it'll be blessed because you give the 10. It's what the word says. And I'm going to tell you right now, he's not even accepting you can look in the Bible. If you don't give, if you did, if they don't give the tithe, we'll show it to you. If you don't give the tithe, he's not even looking at the rest. He was so furious in Malachi chapter one because at that time they were still, you know, slaughtering animals and doing that whole thing, putting them up on an altar. And he was so furious with the priests, the men of God, not just the people, the priests, because they would take the leftovers. The lambs that were spotted and the ones that even had ailments. They'd take blind animals or maybe ones that didn't have all their legs or something. And they were hacking those things up and putting them on the altar. He said, I don't even receive that gift. God is serious when it comes to what we give. I know this doesn't sound like your traditional Christmas message of just being excited about God's gift to us. But hey... Everybody else is talking about what God gives to us. We've got something to give back to God. He's looking for results. He's expecting something in return. We've got to get a clear picture. He just wants us to be blessed. He just wants you to give the tenth because he wants to bless the other 90. He wants you to give that small portion. But God, I need it. He knows you need it. That's why he wants you to give it. Every year when we hand out those things in January that shows how much you gave. You might be excited. Wow, I gave that much. You might be, man, I wish I knew I could have given more. I wish I could have given more. I should have given more. But when you get those things back, that's not just the paper for your taxes. That's to show your faithfulness in giving. And that's to identify with God, I kept your word on giving back to you. 
I kept your word there. And you bless everything else. Look, the ones that have money problems are the ones that aren't given. Bottom line. Well, yeah, but the ones that aren't given, you know, they're already blessed. No, the Bible says that he gives seed to the sower. The person that is sowing is because God gave them the seed in the first place. Look, it's not, e- it's not easy for it, it, it. That's why it's one-tenth. Because if you make $1,000 a week, it can be hard for you to let go of that 100 Whether and If you make $100 a week, it might be just as hard to let go of the 10 You know how we are this day. The more money we make, the higher we start adding things. Oh, great, I made more money, so now I can take on this kind of car payment. I did that. I did that. The most amount of money I ever made in one year was the least amount of money I gave to my church. Because I made more money, and I found more ways to satisfy myself with it. It was the worst year of my life. Financially, it was the worst year of my life. And when April 15th came, and I got my W-2s and said, I made that much. And then I got my statement from my church, and I said, I gave that much? And it answered the question. Who cares if you make $10,000 a month if you have to spend eleven? Why am I talking about money? Because Jesus said, Money is a God. If you don't believe money is a God, then who's talking to you to get out of the bed tomorrow morning? Who's talking to you to not take that vacation? Who's talking to you that says, I need to work overtime this week? Who's talking to you? God said that, Jesus said money is a God. That means it has a voice. It will call the shots if you're not careful. And he said you can't serve both because you'll love one and hate the other. Money is prime when it comes to the gift, when it comes to giving. Because God wanted it to be a resource in our lives to help take care of us, not be what takes care of us. It's a resource. But he has to remain the source. And we've made the resource the source. If I don't get that much, then I can't do this. And it's not about that. We've got a gift. We have a gift. And we've got to lay some stuff down to give it to God. Amen? Well, Father, we thank you. Oh, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Your word is life. It is spirit. It ministers to us. It's not just about getting head knowledge, Father. It's not just about learning something or doing church or going to church, but we are the church, Father. And so I thank you that we have received a word that will bring life to us. Father, if we heard something this morning that that confronted us, Father, I thank you that change comes because of confrontation. If we don't ever confront anything, we'll never change anything. Father, I thank you that we 
see your word for what it is, that it gives us life, it gives us peace. And maybe there are areas in our lives that there's been death. Maybe we've had death in our finances or death in our marriages or death, uh, you know, in, in our jobs, careers, death just in our lives in general. But your word brings life. And so we can bring those things back to life if we hear your word and just obey it, just do it. There's always that urge within us that wants to, uh, I don't know about that, but Father, may we just be doers of your word, not hearers only, not forgetful. You said that person is deceived. Father, we would be deceived today if we walk out of here and this afternoon or tomorrow or later this week we forget everything we heard. You said that person is deceived. But Father, we want to apply, we want to do everything that we're hearing we thank you that this is a church where your word goes forth with boldness, goes forth with clarity, goes forth with authority and with power. And that we'll see people grow up in the things of God, become fruitful for the kingdom of God because we live and abide by your words. In Jesus' name, amen.